This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Did you know that over 85% of cybersecurity breaches happen due to human error? Employees at organizations across the world are too often looked at as the problem instead of the solution. The Living Security Human Risk Management Platform leverages behavioral science, gamification, and a Hollywood-style production to provide training that is 16 times more effective than its competitors. Living Security can help your organization turn your biggest asset, your people, into your best defense against cybersecurity breaches. Check out Living Security by visiting livingsecurity.com to learn more. Thank you, Living Security, for sponsoring this episode. What's going on, everyone? And welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. If you know Chris and I, we love leadership. We love learning about leaders and some of their tactics. This episode, we've brought in an old friend of ours who is the epitome of leadership. Our guest this episode is Brett Williams. Brett has served over 30 years in the military as an officer. He was the director of U.S. Cyber Command and recently helped a company that he co-founded go all the way to IPO. If you're looking to learn more about leadership, this is a great episode to listen in on. So let's jump right into it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. In the studio today, we have an old friend. Our guest this episode is Brett Williams. Brett is the co-founder of Ironet Cybersecurity and has also served in the United States Air Force as a major general and as the Director of Operations of U.S. Cyber Command. There's many more accolades that we'll jump into about Brett's career, but most importantly, Brett, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Chris and Ron. It's awesome to get connected with you guys again after uh, after a few years. It's been super exciting to uh, kind of watch your success from a distance, not only professionally with your jobs, but with your passion here with the podcast. So congrats on all the success. And I feel honored to uh, to be one of your guests, so thanks. No, thank you. It's an honor to have you on. You know, I've really found you as one of the best mentors that I've had in my entire career. And there's so much to learn from you from a leadership and speaking perspective, and definitely from a cybersecurity perspective. But for the folks out there that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Yeah, sure. And I'm, I'm very flattered, Chris, that anything I said had a, a little bit of a positive impact. And I thank you very much for that. So I'll give kind of my thumbnail biography that I kind of give all the time. Uh, I usually start with my wife and I met at Duke University. Go Duke. If there's any Carolina fans <laughs> listening, uh, you know, you're welcome to hang on, but uh, don't send me any nasty notes afterwards. Uh, but we met at, at Duke in the uh, Air Force ROTC program. We both commissioned into the Air Force on, uh, I think it was May 9th, and we graduated on the 10th. We got married a couple of months later, had our 40th anniversary in August. We both went off into the Air Force. My wife, Mary Ann, served for uh, 20 years in the, in the uh, human resources and personnel business. 
and I served for 33 years. Most of that time, about 28 years, I was an F-15 fighter pilot with the wide variety of leadership jobs that go along with that if you're successful enough and lucky enough to move up into the general officer rank. I was the commander of the the largest combat wing in the Air Force, Kadena Air Base in Okinawa, Japan. And I got a call that it was time for a new assignment. And, and that's when I moved off into the uh, to the uh, cool kids club, finally. I, I got over into uh, <laughs> to IT and, and cybersecurity, and uh, I spent my last five years doing that. And I'll be happy to talk more about that that transition. You know, how do you go from being a knuckle-dragging F-15 pilot to a cool cyber guy? And, and <laughs> what did that mean? And then I retired in 2014, and I joined the retired General Keith Alexander, who was the uh, longest-serving director of the NSA, National Security Agency, and the first commander of Cyber Command. But we retired about the same time. He asked me to join as a co-founder with IronNet Cybersecurity. I wasn't sure I wanted to get back into the Alexander Vortex, uh, to be <laughs> honest with you, but thank goodness I jumped in. And so the um, company's been pretty successful. Uh, you may know that we we went public on the New York Stock Exchange about yeah, six weeks congrats. ago. So that was pretty exciting. That's where I am today. We've got a, a couple of kids. We've got a, a daughter, Mickey, who actually has uh, just joined IronNet uh, this summer as an intern and then got offered a full-time position. So she's uh, part of our team now. And then I've got a son, Sean, who did not want a real job. So he is also a fighter pilot. <laughs> he, he's flying F-16s out in uh, at Holloman Air Force Base in Alamogordo, New Mexico. That's a little bit of my background. Wow. So the whole family's doing at least a little bit of something, whether it's in cybersecurity or the military. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And uh, all of them know not to click on the link. So they're all doing pretty good. <laughs> exactly. There we go. <laughs> You know, 33 years is nothing to joke about. It sounds like there were at least a lot of reasons to keep you in the military and serving throughout your career. But what was the story that brought you in to think about joining the military? Did you know about being a fighter pilot? What was that story behind that? You know, I've been asked, asked that a lot. And I've actually gone back to my high school yearbook and tried to identify the the guidance counselor who said, well, if you want to be a pilot, you ought to look at the Air Force. And have you ever heard of Duke? Uh, you know, I grew <laughs> up in South Florida. And so I applied based on really one conversation. I, I applied to go to Duke. I applied for an Air Force scholarship and a pilot slot. And all of that worked out. And <laughs> 33 years later, it seems funny to say that, but that's how it started. And uh, it was just like so many of us, you know, you have that one influence at the right time in your life that gives you some good advice and hopefully you make the best of it. And so that's that's kind of what happened to me because I don't have any family background or anything like that involved with the military. Interesting. Let's let's roll it back even a little bit further. What was the interest with being a pilot? Where did that start? You know, I I thought about it a little bit. I think when I was a, a young kid, you know, I've got the, you know, probably the thing in the baby book says I want to be a jet pilot. But to tell you the truth, <laughs> what happened was somewhere in high school, I decided that I would be a lawyer. And then I figured out that lawyers have to do like a lot of reading and a lot of writing. And I said, that doesn't sound like very much fun. I wonder if I could be a pilot. That sounds much easier. So I started thinking about being a pilot. And, and when I applied to the Air Force and got the scholarship, uh, that kind of sealed my fate. But it wasn't like there was you know, a lot of pre-planning and a, a lot of calculating, like, you know, you've heard of some of those folks that have uh, washed airplanes all their lives to get an hour of flying time and, you know, got their license when they were 16 and da, 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 da. You know, I wasn't like that. I just thought, oh, this might be a good thing to do. And then off I went. That's yeah. crazy that you just said, you know, I'm just going to go with it. Tell us a little bit about your pilot career. And then how did that switch over to cyber at the end? Yeah, absolutely. I was 
pretty fortunate. I did well in, in pilot training and the way it works there, it's the ultimate meritocracy. If you graduate first in your class, you get the first choice. If you graduate second, you get the second choice. And so um, the F-15, I graduated from pilot training in uh, 1982 and the F-15 was a pretty new airplane at that time. And, and there were a couple available and I grabbed one and off I went to, uh, to fly the F-15. You know, as I got into that, it turned out uh, I had some, I don't know, it's a combination of natural ability probably and good instruction and, and work ethic, but uh, I pretty quickly became a, uh, you know, a flight lead and an instructor pilot and, uh, and ended up going to what's called the, back then it was called the fighter weapons school. And for those that, you know, have seen Top Gun, it's kind of the Air Force's version of Top Gun, except, uh, you know, the Navy version's about uh, six weeks long and the Air Force version was four months long. They, they called it getting your PhD and, and being a fighter pilot. And, uh, and so once I did that, that kind of put me in a position where, where I was pretty competitive to do a lot of the things that I wanted to do. And so, you know, as I moved up through the ranks, a commander of a fighter squadron is kind of your first big leadership role. So back at that time, as Langley Air Force Base in, uh, in Virginia, it's honored to command what the 94th Fighter Squadron, which had been commanded by Eddie Rickenbacker, if people recognize that name, the Medal of Honor in World War One. I. I was a few years after him, but goes to show the heritage of the squadron. And then eventually I commanded a couple of wings. I flew in Desert Shield. I flew in Desert Storm. If y'all remember the no-fly zone enforcement, you know, I flew a lot yep. out of Saudi Arabia and Turkey enforcing the, making sure the Iraqis didn't do a lot of flying. And then, uh, and then in Operation Iraqi Freedom, 2002, 2003, I was commanding the, uh, uh, the largest operations group over in uh, Dharan, Saudi Arabia as that war kicked off. And so, uh, culminated there with being the wing commander at Kadena Air Base. It was a neat job, about 9,000 people in the wing. That's really when I got into the realization that uh, good leaders can lead any team is what I like to say, because, you know, I obviously knew about operations and I knew about airplane maintenance, but for instance, I had a group of 1,500 civil engineers I was responsible for. I had a 500 person hospital I was responsible for. And so, you know, there you really see a wide variety of, of, of mission areas that you're responsible for, yet you have no domain expertise, you know, and maybe we can talk about that later. How do you, how do you, how do you operate in that kind of environment? How do you figure out what do I need to do to make this group successful when I can't actually do their jobs? And then I got a call when I was leaving there that it was time for me to change jobs. And I was going to be something called the, the J6 at the U.S. Pacific Command. And for those that don't know anything about military staffs, the J1 is personnel, two is intel, three is operations, four is logistics, five plans, there'll be a test later. Six is, <laughs> is where all the cool people are, right? That's uh, IT, command and control, and, and what was becoming cyber. And so my four-star admiral boss, Tim Keating, I would argue was the first of our four-star combatant commanders to go, you know, I've got to stop looking at this IT and cyber stuff as a support function, right? At US Pacific Command, we're responsible for 52% of the Earth's surface. And he had forces spread you know, all over the Pacific. Uh, but if he couldn't command and control those forces, if he couldn't make sure the orders got to the right people, didn't get to the wrong people, they weren't modified, et cetera, et cetera, then it didn't make any difference you know, whether he had all those forces. He had to be able to command and control. He had to have the operational picture, et cetera, et cetera. And he realized that. And so his thought was he wanted to, to operationalize what he called the J6, operationalize cyber. That was the entire guidance he gave me. So I had to go figure <laughs> out what operationalized cyber meant. And what I eventually figured out was, I didn't eventually figure it out. I figured out pretty quick that 
it wasn't about teaching those those poor IT and comm guys, you know, what the mission was. What the what the challenge was is is getting through to all the other airplane drivers, ship drivers, tank drivers, et cetera, to to get them to pay attention to that mission space, you know, because the people working in the J6 with the command and control systems and, and all the cyber operations, et cetera, they were going to make critical decisions that had strategic impact on the mission. And at the same time, they were never brought into the meeting unless the video teleconference didn't work, right? So the ops people would be frustrated that the J6 people couldn't speak their language, didn't understand the priorities, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, they never brought them in the room, right? So what I found my job to be over the next five years, you know, both there and at, at Cyber Command was, was really bridging that gap in, in language perception and understanding between the people that technically understand the space and the people that have, you know, strategic responsibility for, for execution. And, uh, you know, I'll tell both of you guys that there's nothing I saw in the military during that time that I haven't seen replicated in the, in the private sector. We still struggle with this this gap in language perception and, and understanding. We still struggle with the fact that frequently we don't invite the CIO or the CISO uh, into all the meetings they should be in. And we remain frustrated that we, you know, we can't speak the same language. And so throughout really the 10 or 11 years I've been involved with this, if I had to pick one thing that I think is both my, my area of emphasis and my niche maybe, or, or my contribution is the ability to, uh, to help bridge that gap. You know, I can talk to technical audiences with enough technical depth that they know I know their job. I can't get on the keyboard, but I know their job. But I can also talk to that non-technical leader audience and, you know, help both sides figure out how to communicate. And then, um, and then I don't know how many of your listeners work in the military or associated with the government, but you know, I look back and, you know, there's something called the Cyber National Mission Force. So this is about 6,000 people that are involved with U.S. Cyber Command with, you know, the offensive and the defensive missions. I was responsible for, uh, or at least under my watch, we, we devised that mission structure, a lot of the command and control structures, uh, really all of the structure around how Cyber Command operates came out of some of my time at both Pacific Command and then at, at, at Cyber Command. And so, you know, one of the things they am proud of is that most of that is still in place. On one hand, I go, that's cool. But on the other hand, I go, I thought of most of that like 10 years ago. Doesn't somebody have a better idea? <laughs> so I go, you know, so it's neat to see that still going. And I still stay in pretty close touch with the Air Force and Cyber Command and, uh, you know, even in the course of my, my job now. So so uh, that, that's a long way to get to where, where I asked, but so I'll, I'll, I'll just shut up. But that's kind of my backstory. <laughs> it's crazy how much communication can help things. I've been part of several organizations where people are talking, but no one's really communicating clearly in a language that we can all do something with and move forward. And I'm sure you've learned this over and over again as your time as a leader. I wanted to ask you, what was the point in your career or what's the story behind it that led you to think like, I'm actually pretty good at this and I'm good at directing and orchestrating people, teams, and also processes? I think it, it hit me really when I was a uh, squadron commander, because one of the interesting things about being a fighter pilot is, you know, for the first seven or eight years of your career, I mean, your singular job is to be the best fighter pilot you can be. And while you move up and become a flight lead and instructor and, you know, you're responsible for leading groups of airplanes, et cetera, like that. You don't really have responsibility for, for leading people outside of that, that tactical environment, if you will. And 
when I became a squadron commander, um, you know, I've been in the Air Force about 18 years, I guess. Think I'm, you know, 37 or 38 years old, something like that. And now I've got responsibility for 350 people. 300 of them are all the enlisted team that maintains and flies the airplanes. Two thirds of them are probably under 23 years old. Um, you have responsibility, and a lot of people don't realize this, but as the commander of a military organization like that. Uh, you have pretty incredible responsibility as far as, you know, both the good things, you know, in terms of helping people with their professional development, in terms of recognizing their work, recommending them for promotion, et cetera, et cetera. But on the flip side, you have all of this, I don't know, disciplinary responsibility, I guess is the way I'd start to describe it, where you literally have to make decisions about, you know, whether people can stay in the Air Force or not, which means do they still have a job? Can they feed their families, do all these things? And so, the responsibilities you have to maintain the quality, the force, et cetera, is, is, is huge. And so, so during that job with both the, the mission responsibilities, for instance, you know, I had to, had to take my squadron of, of 24 airplanes and, and 350 people. We had to deploy to Saudi Arabia. We had to do our thing, you know, for whatever it was back then, three months, get everybody home safely, et cetera. You know, and when you're forward doing that, it's just you, you know, you're part of another organization, but you're responsible for that mission execution and those people. And so, it was at that point as I was coming up on 20 years that I really realized that what I really like is this leadership you know, opportunity. And actually, Ryan, if you go back to it, the story I've told sometimes is even as that young fighter pilot, at some point when you become an instructor, all of a sudden you realize that while I really like being a really good kick-ass fighter pilot, I really enjoy teaching other people to become good kick-ass fighter pilots. And you get this satisfaction out of instructing and, and, and bringing people along. Now, fast forward now as a, a squadron commander, a group commander, and a wing commander, uh, you know, I had the opportunity several times to go back to the uh, course the Air Force holds for new wing commanders and to have the opportunity to go in and mentor and teach people that are about to take on these, these jobs where they're responsible for, you know, several thousand people in these different missions, et cetera, et cetera. And so, it was all during that time that I really started to really get an appreciation for how much satisfaction you get out of out of really bringing the people on board that are there to take your place. And I have I've continued that to this day. Fortunately, I still get to do some mentoring with the Air Force. Uh, you know, I get to do some some leadership discussions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, it was really the Air Force that that gave me the opportunity to be a leader and uh, gave me the tools and then also uh, uh, gave me the opportunity to do something that it turned out I really enjoyed. One of the things that echoes through my head when you're talking about leadership is something that you said, and I'm, I'm sure you still say it to this day, but you told me that you manage resources and you lead people. And a lot of people get hung up on that manager word. I, I have this love-hate relationship with management now because I do feel like some people get hung up on the management part and they don't go enough into the leadership part. What is that differentiator for you between management and leadership? And then also, is there a story that really sticks out in your mind that really illustrates that differentiation between the two? And, you know, I can remember at IronNet the first time I used that, Chris, if you remember, uh, uh, you know, we had that, that Tyson's corner office and I was talking to three or four of the software developers there. I don't remember what the discussion was, but I said, you know, you guys, you got to make a distinction. You, you manage resources, but you have to lead people. And I'm telling you, all three of them all of a sudden looked at me like I had said something in a foreign language. You know, <laughs> it, it was it was clear they hadn't had never thought of it that way. And I'll be I've got to be honest with you. 
While that distinction was clear in the military, it is much, much more distinct for me in the private sector because I think that, well, you know, a couple of things, I, I'll be honest with you because I'm honest with everybody. I speak as well all the time, is that there's a culture in the military, particularly on, it's true on the enlisted side, but it's it's really true on the officer side, which is, you know, it's at some point they don't pay you to be a great fighter pilot or a great cyber officer or a great logistics officer or whatever. What they're paying you for is to be a good leader, right? And so you do not move up if you don't somehow figure out how to be a good leader. And and I'm telling you, it's most of it, like I've always said, you know, 10 or 20 percent is the formal training. The rest of it is OJT. It's what do you observe that's good? What do you observe that's bad? How are you able to adapt what you've learned here to new situations? And the emphasis on leadership that comes, you know, particularly in the officer corps in the military, but also it, it comes equally in the enlisted corps. I don't mean to say that doesn't, but obviously my experience is clearly with the officer corps and the same dynamic starts to apply much more in the senior enlisted ranks. But anyway, the emphasis on leadership and then the trust they put in you to, to lead different organizations and to figure out how to do different things. Because this move from, you know, being a fighter pilot, if you will, to IT and cyber was, you know, a huge break. But even before that, I was in a number of different positions where I had to figure out stuff that, you know, I had, like I said before, no domain expertise. And so now back to your point is, you know, I've seen it in our company. I've worked with a number of companies in my keynote speaking and some of my leadership work, et cetera, that I think they all struggle with the same dynamic, this idea of managers. And they tend to use manager where I think we should say leader. And I, don't get me wrong. It's a nuanced discussion. Like, I think a good leader is also a good manager, but you can be a decent manager without being a very good leader. I don't think you're going to survive very long. I don't think your organization is going to be nearly as successful as it could be. But the whole issue of managing resources is, you know, it's just about that. You know, can I meet the budget? Uh, can I deliver the software on time? Can I do these things that, that are normally, you know, measured by typical business metrics? But I think, you know, I've seen it. I'm, I imagine you guys have seen it. I've certainly seen it in our company. Uh, we rarely have somebody leave because... They don't like the pay. More often than not, they leave because they're not inspired by their manager because their manager is not being a leader. And so what I think leaders do different is, and I usually use these three words to describe what leaders do, is they, they do three things. They, they do mission, vision, and they do resources, okay? And what I mean by that is the first one is mission. You know, whether you're in a military organization, you're in a civilian company, I believe that that people have to be inspired by the work they're doing, uh, that the work they're doing is important. And it's it's more often than not, it's got to be important beyond just the dollars that the, they're going to make as a result of working at the company. I think they have to be inspired by what they're doing, that what they're doing gets them excited, that what they're doing you know, brings them to work every day, that what they're doing is challenging, and that at some level, there's some greater good to that. And so... As a leader, I want to be able to make sure that I can help everybody on my team. I call it connect the dots, connect the dots from what they do every day to the mission of the organization. So that's number one is mission. And can I connect you to your job, to the mission of, of our organization? Number two is vision is can I motivate you to, you know, what is the ultimate objective of, of our organization? Can I help you see that? 
that your work is going to get us there? Can I help provide the motivation that's going to that's going to move us that direction? So, so within vision is this idea of of motivation, and motivation. Some of it is is compensation, but most of it is really back related to the mission, right? Is can I help you connect the dots? Do you see why this is important to you? Do you see why this is important to the team? Can I convince you that it's it's more important to do the best you can every day for the team as opposed to worrying about, you know, what your commission is, et cetera, et cetera. And so that vision and motivation piece is the second part. And then third uh, is, is the resource application of this. And my job as the leader is to make sure you have three resources that you need to do your job. And one of them is money, but the other two are time and people. And time is really that most precious resource and people making sure that I've done everything I can to get you the the right people with the right training in order to to help you be successful. And so I, I think it's bringing those three things together that that distinguish a leader. Because at the end of the day, if I've got that vision, you know, I've got the motivation, you've got the mission, and you've got the resources, then the last thing I want to do is screw that up by micromanaging you and telling you what to do, right? Right. I want to set that mission and vision I want to give you the resources and then I want to turn you loose to, to deliver it because nobody knows how to do the job better than you do. And if you've got all of those other things that I provided you, you're going to do way better by just turn you loose and let you go, maybe keep you in the curbs once in a while. But what I really want you to do is my other favorite leadership expression is beg forgiveness, don't ask permission, go get it done. And so that's kind of, a, kind of the background of that, that manage resources and lead people. Those are three great points. And it sounds easy. It sounds really easy just to like embody these points and try to craft your team around it. But I think a lot of leaders also need that inspiration. They need a bit of motivation to be able to demand these types of resources, whether it's people, opportunity, or even money. What are some inspiration points for you outside of the the work that you've done in the military? How do you learn constantly and reinvent yourself to become a better leader? That's what leaders do. What I talked about before, you know, this vision, the motivation, the resources, that's what leaders do. And then I think I've got another distinction I make in what are some of the characteristics? Because everybody goes, okay, so what are the characteristics of a good leader? So I would differentiate what you do and I'll answer your question with, with what are the characteristics of a good leader? And you know, again, I came out of the military, so everything has three things. And my three things are, it's about influence, it's about self-awareness, and it's about humility, because it gets to your point about kind of how do you figure out, in my view, how to, how to keep getting better, right? And, and so I think part one of that is leaders figure out that their job ultimately is to, to influence, right? I, I don't want to tell you what to do. I want to influence my team and you'll get them moving in the right direction. And I can do that as a formal leader, you know, as defined by the by the wiring chart, I can do that as what I would call a peer leader. You know, where I'm not a formal leader, but I have, uh, I become a peer leader, right? I can work across the team at the level I am. I can lead up, I can lead down, but I have influence as a leader in the middle. And then I can also do that as a uh, a leader across teams. And so, understanding your ability to influence, no matter really where you are in the org chart, I think is is the first thing good leaders do. The second thing good leaders do is they help self-awareness. They realize where their gaps are. Uh, They truly believe that if I'm the smartest one in the room or the smartest one on the team, we are not going to be successful. I really want a team of people who are much smarter than me, right? Because they're going to fill in all of those gaps I don't have. I just want to be smart enough to bring the right people on the team. So that self-awareness. 
And then once you've got the self-awareness piece, you know where your gaps are. So now it brings in the third aspect, which is humility. And humility is that willingness to admit, I'm not the smartest person in the room. The willingness to say, hey, I made a bad decision there. The willingness to go out and say, I have some shortcomings that no matter how long I've been a leader, I can improve, right? So I can, I can take a course, I can read a book, I can I get a coach. I have to have the humility to say, there is always something I can do better as a leader. And, uh, you know, I've kind of got an example of this self-awareness and humility piece from, from my work at IronNet, but I won't go through the positions I had there. But one of the things I learned at IronNet that, frankly, I, I knew in the military, but <laughs> I didn't really figure it out until I was at IronNet working in the, at a more of a tactical leadership level again. And, and that's this idea of, uh, you know, what level of leadership do you need to, to apply in order to make sure your team at the level they are can perform the best they can? And, and this comes from, um, if you've heard of a model called situational leadership, it was developed back in the early 60s, but it was basically about applying the right leadership style based on the readiness of your followers, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so as a, as a senior officer in the Air Force, you know, everybody that worked for me was, was pretty senior. And so I prided myself on a leadership style that was, you know, identified by delegation. In other words, you know, I'd tell Chris and Ron, hey, you guys know this is what we want to do. Go take your team. Let's get it done. Because you had your own team of two or three or 400 people, right? I didn't need to, I didn't need to really provide any detailed uh, knowledge of that. And after a few years of working at IronNet, I was wondering why some of the teams just weren't doing as well as they, they could. And I actually went and took this situational leadership course, and it really made me think about this idea that not everybody's ready for a, a delegatory leadership style, right? That if you're brand new to this job or you're young or you're inexperienced, et cetera, you may need a very directive leadership style. You know, hey, Ron, I want you to do A, B, and C and come back and tell me when it's done, okay? And then what my objective is, is to get, you know, Ron up to the next level where we can discuss, well, Ron, what do you think needs to be done? He goes, well, I think I need to do A, B, and C. And I go, yeah, you need to do A, B, and C, but you also need to do D and E. So go do that and come back, right? And eventually I want to work to where, you know, Ron has the confidence, the background, the expertise, where all he needs to know is that overall mission objective. And so I feel like I failed some of the teams that I led at IronNet because I didn't realize and adapt my leadership style from leading a bunch of very senior and experienced people to being able to adapt and figure out that there are people uh, that you're leading that, you know, just haven't done this before. And so they need some very specific guidance. You're speaking my language because I just had a, a situation very similar I came from Netflix, which is very context, not control, very, hey, here's the situation, go execute. And then I went into a scenario where I had to be much more directive. And in fact, Mm -hmm. people felt like I was dismissive because I I just gave them the context and just let them go to their marching orders. And they felt like they were left holding the bag. So I completely understand that. And I want to reiterate that for everybody out there that are leaders, that sometimes you do have to adapt that leadership style to the people that you're leading, which leads me to this next question. There's someone listening to this podcast right now where they feel at home in the process. They know where things need to go. They know where information needs to to flow through. And they're also very comfortable with the technology. They've been living this technology world since the day they were born and they feel very comfortable, but they feel like people are that additional language that they have to learn. They just don't get it. They don't understand how do you lead people in this world of cybersecurity and technology. What is that one piece of advice you would have for that leader today to give them the confidence to begin to speak to their people in a way they need to? 
take a risk and, and go do it. And what I mean is take a risk and go do it and go, go try out leadership. Because the thing is, is that not everybody is set up to, to be a team lead. Not everybody is equipped to be, you know, to have that leadership. And then again, I consider good managers, a subset of good leader. You know, if you're a good leader, you're also going to be a good manager, but, but what I, I don't like seeing is, is people, you know, who I know could, could be a good team lead, for example, and you talk to them, they go, well, I don't want to do that because I don't want basically, they don't basically want the administrative responsibility. You know, I want to stay on the keyboard, you know, and I, mm-hmm. that's what I figured out about hackers is they're just like fighter pilots. They never want to leave the, they don't want to leave the <laughs> cockpit, right? That's all they right. want to do. But, but guess what? You guys both know that, you know, those are the people that'll sit there and, you know, moan and complain that they don't have the resources. They don't have control. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Hey, if you really want to move the organization forward and you want to be a position to do that, then you're going to have to take a leadership role, right? And prove that you can do that, that motivation, vision, resources piece, prove that you can help make decisions. So I would say, don't be afraid of taking those leadership roles. And a lot of ways, you know, especially for junior people in the company, like I know in, in our company at IronNet, we've got a lot of formal ways that you can take a leadership role, you know, whether we've got... Um, you know, we got a, a philanthropy group that kind of guides the company in terms of, you know, where do we want to do a philanthropic kind of, of things. We've got a, a, a diversity, equity and inclusion group that, you know, is looking at ways that, that we can get more aware of those things, you know. And so these are opportunities to lead these groups, work as that team lead, set up the meetings, set up the process, try to measure results, all of that. You know, and that's a good way to start doing that. And then the second thing is, is you know, if your boss asks you, hey, I would like you to lead this particular project or, hey, I would like you to lead this team, I would encourage you to grab it and try it because uh, they wouldn't ask you to to lead if they didn't think that you had the skills to do that. But I, what I will tell you guys, and you guys probably both have seen this is, I don't know if it's most companies, most companies I've seen aren't necessarily good at developing leaders. So when you get in that role, you have to be aggressive about getting the support you need to be a, a good leader. And that's about, it's not just picking your boss's brains, it's, it's finding somebody else in the company that maybe is in a, a similar role, but has been doing it for a couple of years and, you know, grab them as a mentor. And then, you know, the biggest thing you can do is, is read, take advantage of going to classes, all of that. But most of us, you're going to learn on the job. And the thing I tell people is, you know, as you're coming up through the, the different levels of the organization is take notes, right? Uh, take notes of things you've seen that you really liked and worked. And it's just as important to write down things that you went, that stunk. I will never do that, right? <laughs> and so write down those things, you know, but as soon as you have the opportunity, take it. And if you don't have the opportunity, make it. You know, but at the end of the day, there's people that don't like doing it. You know, that's you don't have that option in the military normally. It's you know, there is an up or out thing. But in the private sector, I've met plenty of people that have been in the same job for 20 years and they like it okay. But if you're sitting in your job complaining about the decisions of leadership and you've never tried to become part of the leadership, then just you know, either go be part of the solution or stop complaining. I hear that, Brett. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to hop on the mics with us and talk about leadership, management, and the way ahead. For folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the great things you have going on in your life, what are the best ways that people can do that? The main thing I'm on still is is LinkedIn. And so please reach out and connect with me on LinkedIn. And then, uh, you know, I'm happy to engage with you one off there. But yeah, I would love to continue to expand my network out there. 
particularly people that are, are looking for uh, maybe some other thoughts on, on, on leadership and, and how they might apply some of the lessons I've learned over the years. Excellent. We'll be sure to drop your LinkedIn in the show notes. And also for anyone that's listening, if you need a keynote speaker, Brett is always a great option. He's done tons of that. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.